is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach, and today I welcome Laura Morgan Roberts to the show. Laura will talk about race in the workplace and the power of feeling connected. Laura, I'm thrilled to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Caroline. You know, I really appreciate your background. You're an academic, you're a researcher, and you've been studying race in the workplace for your entire career. And this new book is uh, really a, a compelling look that started back from work that you did on a project looking at the success of Black Harvard Business School grads versus non-Black graduates. And I'd love you to tell us more about that so we can lead into the conversation about the book. I'd be delighted to, Caroline. I'd first like to start by sharing my personal connections to Harvard Business School. So I began my faculty career at HBS in 2002. I was a 27-year-old assistant professor teaching organizational behavior to Harvard Business School MBA students. And over the years, I remained connected to HBS through various collaborations and initiatives. And I was delighted to help the school commemorate the founding of its African-American Student Union uh, in 2018. We were actually commemorating the 50-year anniversary of ASU's founding. And as part of that research, as you mentioned, uh, my collaborators, it, including Tony Mayo, who's a professor at HBS now, as well as Robin Ely, who's also a professor at Harvard Business School, we wanted to learn more about uh, the ways in which Black students had uh, unique experiences, not just at HBS, but as their careers unfolded. Because, you know, many would argue, well, lots of the challenges that underrepresented minorities and women face in the workplace has to do with a lack of credentials or qualifications. And if they just had the access to the same credentials or qualifications, or in other words, they look the same on paper, then they'd be able to have the same kind of opportunities and their careers would flourish as a result. Um, Not surprising to you, we did find that even when These African-American alumni had top-notch credentials. They still experienced uh, career challenges due to race and for the women also due to gender uh, compared to their counterparts. So for instance, they were significantly less likely to reach the C-suite. They were less likely to be um, placed in global assignments or in assignments that were considered key strategic roles for their firms. Um, They had considerable access to mentors and they valued mentorship, um, but they did not have the same levels of satisfaction with uh, some aspects of the of their careers, uh, in large part based on the discrimination and the uh, race-related challenges that they had faced. So I, I find it really compelling that you unearthed through your research this theme that um, individuals were passionate about a desire to feel connected, and, and people wanted to feel connected to the message of the company, and like they're part of something that, that gave them meaning and purpose. Tell me more about that. That's right. And, you know, that's really a human desire to 
feel connected. Um, we derive a sense of self, you know, and our identity through our connections. You know, you can think about your family dynamics, your community dynamics, and your workplace dynamics, and how your identity is in large part relational, right? You're somebody's sister, you're somebody's daughter, you're somebody's neighbor, you're somebody's friend, you're somebody's colleague, you may be somebody's boss or manager, or somebody's subordinate, right? So feeling connected is part of the social fabric of our world. Um, it, this becomes challenging for Black professionals in our research because even though they're physically present, they don't feel that they can be their true and authentic selves within many of these professional contexts. So they don't feel fully known and valued and understood. Uh, they also don't feel that they have access to sponsors. And this is not surprising because oftentimes people gravitate toward others who remind them of their younger selves, right? So if you don't share that similarity and background with leadership or other power brokers in your organization or industry, maybe less likely to be tapped for the sponsorship relationships as well. So they're feeling less um, connected to those developmental opportunities. And then, as you said, they also want to feel connected through a sense of purpose, right? So they would, they would share that they're are working very diligently to make a valuable contribution through their work, but they question whether those contributions are truly valued by the organizations or the firms in which they work. There's a, there's a slight difference there, right? They are motivated with a sense of purpose, but they are concerned that their contributions are not valued or recognized or that the tasks that they've been given to work on are not the most um, valued from a strategic perspective in their organization. You know, it, it's very interesting to me because we're at a point in time, especially with so many things that have happened in the past six to eight months in, in our American culture. And I'll say that because I know we have an international audience. As we, we navigate 2021, we see so many workplaces are really confronting their role in structural racism in the workplace. And everybody's talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, but I still have to, it just get, feels like it's shallow. What are we doing to move the needle? Have you seen great examples in the workplace of, of doing impactful things that our, our black colleagues are feeling gratified by? Well, when we talk about structural racism, we, we're referring to the patterns of inclusion and exclusion that align with access to valued resources and opportunities. So that there are certain segments of the demographic that would have increased access to those resources and opportunities with others less so. And what makes it striking is that the same patterns of access replicate themselves in our workplaces and in other segments of society. So when you're talking about access to medical care, when you're talking about who's getting the vaccines first for COVID-19, when you talk about who's dying at the you know highest percentages of COVID-19, you're looking at the same tragic patterns, you know, access to education, 
access to uh, to loans and financing and even PPE, uh, PPP funding uh, through the CARES Act. Time and time again, you see Black leaders, Black individuals, Black communities being undercapitalized, marginalized, or, or perhaps even exploited. So to your question about leading change, it takes a diverse group of stakeholders to tackle these issues together. And I think the most compelling examples are those in which business leaders are partnering with policymakers and activists and thought leaders to develop a set of shared commitments and initiatives to move this work forward. So a few examples of that would be um, the World Economic Forum just released a report. Um, I was pleased to contribute to that. It's coming out of a task force to address racial injustice and anti-Black racism as it manifests in our businesses and workplaces. Um, the Business Roundtable, which is based here in the U.S., but it's led by um, global corporate leaders who came out in the summer of 2020 and said, we're going to make a joint commitment toward uh, fighting for racial justice. And on their website, you can see the commitments of dozens that dozens of organizations and how they're trying to tackle this and you know, internal and external partnerships, investments, talent management commitments, and so forth. And a third example that's similar, a parallel to the business roundtable in Canada is the Black North Initiative. Again, a group of leaders who, business leaders, who are, I think, by at least signing on to these initiatives, they're signaling that they're going to hold themselves accountable and allow external stakeholders to play a greater role in holding them accountable than they had in the past. Uh, those steps are promising. What's happening internally is, uh, honestly, it's, it's a mixed bag. And I think uh, there were a lot of leaders who were quite enthusiastic and impassioned in the summer um, but not quite prepared for the amount of resistance that they would receive when they tried to institute change that would explicitly address anti-Black racism within their organizations. So in these scenarios, what we often find is the needle is moved. So you start with a conversation about structural racism, racial injustice, anti-Black racism, and what you can do to invest in Black and African-American workers within your own organization so that they can have better opportunities and a better quality of experience. And in a matter of weeks, you've already shifted the focus or the needle has moved toward working in tandem, but working on the issues of other constituencies as well. Um, racism is very difficult for people, for business leaders to address um, because it's been a taboo topic for many. Um, they experience it as unpalatable. And as we write about in our opening of race, work, and leadership, the global history of the transatlantic global history 
of race in the workplace is sullied by the origins in um, the racialization of oppressed and exploited labor, um, speaking explicitly about enslavement. So we don't really tackle those histories and how they impact the ways that people lead and manage today and their access to opportunities, but the impact has reverberated. And um, when we keep our eye on the origins and the manifestations over time, we're better able to address the wide range of problems that have emerged from it. Um, but you're right. Oftentimes it's really surface level. Well, let's talk about belongingness. Let's talk about inclusion. And then it becomes a catch all. Right. And so we're trying so hard to equate the experiences of a white male introvert to the experiences of, um, you know, an immigrant who grew up in an um, impoverished background or an impoverished community, you know, within our own country here in the U.S., we we get lost in false equivalencies, Caroline. So I'll pause there. <laughs> That's a perfect segue because you read my mind. I was thinking of this moment in the book where you mentioned that employers are not taking into account the lived experiences outside of the workplace that affect the work of our Black colleagues and our pe- persons of color, right? It, it's not the same as their, as you just mentioned, white introvert male colleague, right? And and you write about how we've got to affirm the value of our employees' story and their lived experience. So for all the, the bosses and the leaders out there listening, how do they begin to do that? Well, I, I think it's twofold. We did make strides in 2020 in um, opening ourselves up to hearing and honoring the lived experiences of Black professionals, for instance, and of members of other marginalized groups by extension. And I think the way that happened was through the reaction to George Floyd's murder and the global demonstrations, not just in the U.S., but in you know dozens of countries all around the world, there were global demonstrations of outrage about this. And that provoked many members of organizations to look at one another and said, you know, it wasn't just George Floyd. I've had that kind of experience too, and not just in my community, But I've also experienced microaggressions, hostility, felt unsafe, even here in the context of our organization and workplace. So we open that, what I call the hush box. The the challenge that we face now is in honoring what we heard and taking it up um, to give us a deeper sense of conviction to lead change in this domain. Uh, What happens instead is many people hear that, they feel guilty, they feel ashamed, maybe they feel guilty and ashamed that they were completely unaware, or maybe they feel that they've been complicit and they feel a sense of conviction around that, um, and then they disengage from the work and instead invest their energy in minimizing or denying the reality of structural racism, doing a lot of virtue signaling, defending one's own self-worth and disengaging from the real work of leading change. 
So if we're going to go there, if we're going to open the hush box and have these conversations, we have to be prepared with courage to confront them and what they teach us about ourselves and our organizations. So let me ask if this is relevant to the hush box, because you, you, again, you write beautifully about, look, before you act as an organization, you know, and, and implement a DNI strategy, right? Let's just say as an example, you've got to take in the data and learn about the situation. And, and I find that so many organizations are rushing to say, hey, we've got to make change. And, and although they're well-meaning, are, are they going about it the right way? Well, we know any change initiative should be backed by data, right? Um, especially culture change initiatives. Um, and, and it's so squishy. There's so many subjectivities. There's been so much uh, suppre- suppression that has been baked into our treatment of race in the workplace. You know, it's been taboo. I tell the story of when I was in graduate school 20 years ago and I was trying to collect data on race in the workplace and I mean, I had a, I got a lot of doors slammed in my face. Let me just say that. So even when people have the data, when, when leaders, when HR has the data, for instance, they don't want to make that data public because they're concerned about what it might say about them and reflect upon them unfavorably. So it just stops. If HR doesn't stop it, legal might stop it because they feel that it, it it's risky. All in all, you know, as you, as you're saying, Caroline, we can't do the work without being well-informed about the current situation, what's actually happening. If there are disparities, we need to document them. And so then we can have more targeted initiatives that are addressing the problems in the ways they manifest within our specific organization. So what are some of the actions that we can take to, to make a difference and make things better? And, and I mean, holistically, right? I mean, the allies who are looking to support our diverse colleagues and the leadership and even, even uh, people of color, right? What, how can we work together to move this needle? I do think it's holistic, Caroline. I think it requires that we engage three zones of action, our head, our heart, and our hands. Hey, we want to join that, jump to action and just do, do, do and fix, fix, fix and make it right. But that's like putting a Band-Aid on a wound without really understanding the origins of it and how it might be, you know, manifesting in within that individual and within our system. So we've got to engage our head. This is where we're getting the data, um, not just j- jumping on the basis of our assumptions. Uh, the second in terms of our heart, it's about practicing what I call radical affirmation. So, you know, betting on the potential of somebody, even if you're betting against the odds, um, it might feel different and new and perhaps a little risky, but bet on the potential of somebody from an underrepresented background and give them the same opportunity to be great, to fail and learn from it, um, to have some mediocre days, but still be viewed as a solid contributor. You know, all of those things are really important demonstrations of allyship. They open the door, they keep it open. We also talk about with allyship and action that it's not always about you standing out in front and getting the credit for what's happening. It could be about you stepping aside and letting somebody else have a cherished or prized opportunity that could increase their visibility and exposure. Um, So those are three things three examples of things that we can do to engage our head, heart, and hands. But when we work together, um, 
we can really go through a discovery process. And I, I think you'd be amazed at how many of the solutions exist within your organization's uh, knowledge base already. People are living with this. So they, you ask the question, they will give you some suggestions. Awesome. Right. Don't don't ignore the obvious, right? Well done. Hey, I want to give a shout out to your awesome Harvard Business Review article called Success Comes from Affirming Your Potential. And it again it it talks about radical affirmation, right? And giving giving that person a chance. I think that is brilliant wisdom and and frankly something we need to put into practice. Thank you so much. Laura, I just loved our time together today. I learned so much from you. I love the book. It's called Race, Work, and Leadership, New Perspectives on the Black Experience. And of course, it's available on Amazon and major book retailers. But the website where the book is also available is raceworkleadership.com. Laura, thanks. I really appreciate your time today. It was wonderful. Thank you. And if you like the show, subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or SoundCloud. And even better, leave us a review. And here's why. A review triggers the algorithms online and helps new listeners find us. And let me know what career-minded issues you would like for us to feature on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at Higgins. And a special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.